Good morning. I'm glad you are here. I'm glad to be here. We are. We missed last Sunday with you. Um, we were back east in New Hampshire holding little granddaughters. I have 300 pictures that I'd like to show you now. <laughs> and video. And maybe I'll show some next Sunday if other people don't take too much time. No. No. Um, we had a great time. It was 95 there. And humid. And I one more time told my son it was the will of God that he move his family to the West Coast because I'm sure not moving there. Uh, man. Anyway, it was a lot of fun. Uh, we had a great time. We spent like three full days with our little granddaughters. Five, three, and about one. And it's just exhausting. Just a lot of fun. We, you know, we play them for about four hours and then we have to go back to the hotel room and go... Anyway, that was a great time. Uh, I, I listened to at least part of Matt's sermon last week. Uh, how many of you here last Sunday? He talked a lot about sex. You remember that? And right at the beginning of the message, he said, he was talking about making babies. And he said, if you have any questions and need some clarification on making babies and what that means, then send an email to C. Palmer at CNBC. You remember that? I remember it. There will be payback. This morning I want to talk about drunkenness. So if you have any questions about drunkenness, send your difficult questions to mbowen at cnbc.org. And he will clear it right up for you. I didn't get any emails. And I pondered the reason, why not? I have questions. Um, and I thought, well, probably people didn't email me because they didn't want to, like, say they didn't know. Or maybe Matt answered all your questions and you didn't have any more questions about that. Or it's most likely that people didn't email me because they thought, he's a preacher, he won't have a clue on what... <laughs> how to answer this one, so we'll ask somebody else. But anyway, I respect and appreciate your wisdom and not emailing me uh, about questions about making babies. Thank you very much. You're a wise and gracious group of people, and keep it up. Um, We're going to return to our study of Ephesians this morning, so if you have a Bible, turn to Ephesians 5. Before we do that, um, I wanted to spend a couple minutes interviewing a friend of mine. Uh, Most of you know this brother. He's been around for a while. Um, at Cedar Mill longer than I have. And so you know him, but I thought there's enough of our people who are new in our church who might not know Linus Morris. And so I thought this would be a good chance for uh, me to share a few words with him and let him share a few words with you. And I, I just want to confess up front that I have a dual motive. The dual motive is, is I really do want you to know about our missionaries and to encourage them and to pray for them um, and to know have updates on a regular basis about what's happening in their lives and how God's using them around the world. But Linus actually belongs to the mission organization that we are applying to. So I thought I could endorse him, and then I'm hoping he will say some really endorsing things about me and our movement towards Global Training Network. So that's my double motive. I just want to confess it up front. Linus, would you come up? Will you welcome Linus Morris? 
Welcome again, brother. Thank you for coming. Um, for those of you who don't know you, um, for those of us who don't know you, um, will you give us a little history? You were one of the first missionaries sent out from here, or it's been a while ago? Uh, I don't know if we were one of the first, but uh, we date back to 1964. I've been a Christian for six months, and uh, Sharon and I joined the staff of Campus Crusade for Christ in Cedar Mill sent us out and we work with students uh, in Chicago and then got uh-huh. transferred to Southern California, UCLA. And then we, then we changed. It was the Jesus Movement time. And so we started an organization called Christian Associates. Mm-hmm. And uh, we did that for 43 years, uh, training, mm-hmm. uh, discipleship, uh, began to send out basketball teams, evangelism, and then uh, we started church planting. So we uh-huh. did that for a long time. And then uh, two years ago, we joined the staff of Global Training Network and mm. felt that we could kind of leverage all those years of experience and those different aspects of ministry along the way mm. in, in training uh, other leaders uh, globally and with a goal toward multiplying what we call viral missional church planting oh, movements. Yeah. So that's, yeah. what, that's what we're after. So at Christian Associates, um, how many churches over those years would you say you were involved in seeing that ministry began around the world? Probably around 50 wow. uh, that we were involved in starting. And, uh, a lot of them in Europe? Uh, probably about yeah. 35 of those uh-huh. in Europe and then uh, some sprinkled out el- elsewhere. And that, that's what actually led us hmm. to then going global was, was the fact that uh, there were others hmm. who saw what we did. Uh, Ugandan leader of a, of a church network hmm. said, will you come and train our leaders so we could do this, so we could multiply out in Uganda. And that led us to mm-hmm. South Sudan and now Brazil, and we're, we're weighing invitations from other, other countries as well. With Global Training Network. With Global yeah. Training Network, yeah. Uh, let me go back to Christian Associate. I mean, you were instrumental in beginning this organization. It was like your baby in a lot of ways. So why would you leave? I mean, you could have... Kept doing that yeah. for you know until yeah. the Lord brought you took you home and they would have you were the head of it and they would have honored you and so why do this now? Well, they they did honor us and and but I, about five years ago I realized that I'm not going to be the leader of Christian Associates forever hmm. and so the best time to put a new building a new roof on a building as well the sun's shining and so I mm-hmm. thought well that would be a time to hand off the leadership somebody else can run with it and then I can focus back on on uh, again training and mm-hmm. multiplying other leaders in the kinds of things that we've done uh, all along all along the way so you travel around the world mostly is this with pastors who have very little training, or, a lot, or? Uh, well, you know, the statistic is that in the Western world, there's one trained leader for every 250 people, mm-hmm. and in the majority world, or you call it the two-thirds world, or the developing world, there's one trained leader for every 250,000 people. Yeah. And uh, Paul Madsen, who started Global Training Network in 2004, was a pastor, started a church, grew it, Cedar Mill size. And he would take these short-term trips in the summer to train leaders. And then as he would get ready to come back to his church, he would ask, what's the greatest need that you have? And over and over again, people said, it's for 
training is to train leaders. The, the Christian movement is spreading, it's exploding in many places, mm-hmm. but we, we don't have trained leaders and we uh-huh. don't have the resources. Mm-hmm. So you can pull those people out and try to send mm-hmm. them to some four-year seminary somewhere and, oh, and yeah. uh, with the cost that's involved. And, or you can bring in people with mm-hmm. experience and, and train those leaders on site. Give an example mm-hmm. of the kind of training that's, that's lacking. Is I, a, a Paul Madsen story talked with a young pastor said you know he 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 was actually pastoring three or four churches and he would just rotate around he said mm-hmm. Paul asked him well what do you what do you train them in he says John 3:16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son etc and, and he said well then, then what do you tra- train them in after that he said John 3:16 that's all he knew he just uh-huh. knew John 3.16, he had no biblical training apart from that. And you can multiply that tens of thousands of times. Uh, you were recently in, a, in Uganda. All right, so what were you doing there? Uh, Uganda, South Sudan. Yeah. Oh, uh, South Sudan, yeah. Uh, uh, as That's well. the new country, right? A new, Brand new, new country, yeah. newest country. Yeah. Uh, been around for about two years, and yeah. it's it's one of 25 uh, of Arabic-speaking nations, mm. but it's the only Christian-leaning Arabic-speaking mm. nation of the, of the 25. It's, mm. it's it's a nominal Catholic country, but they just broke away from Sudan, got their mm-hmm. independence. But the, the pastors that we're working with, the network of pastors that we're working with, have a vision to take the gospel back into those other. 24 mm-hmm. Arabic mm-hmm. Uh, na- nations. So our, our training material is being translated into Arabic. In Uganda, again, we, we look for a network of pastors who have a vision mm-hmm. to, to multiply out and even beyond their own communities, their own tribes, beyond their own national borders to the surrounding countries. Mm-hmm. But they just don't know how to do that. Mm-hmm. And actually, uh, the Ugandan who, mm-hmm. who approached us had read... The book that I wrote some years ago called The High Impact Church. And he came to Europe at a conference that I was leading and, and uh, wanted to know what we were doing and how we were doing it because he said that Africa is rapidly urbanizing. And they feel that the kinds of things that we did in Europe have application in Africa today. So he invited us to come to Uganda and, and we have this four phase training that uh, we take leaders through so that by the time we get done, they're doing what we we're, we're doing. Mm. And so the third time around, we just did that in Uganda. Uh, we had, we had uh, two Africans, actually three Ugandans, who did 60% of the training. Uh-huh. And we did 40%. Yeah. Next time, October, they'll do 100%, and we'll just be there to coach them. Oh, cool. So it's so what we call getting in the way and then getting out of the way, yeah. with the idea that then they're bringing other leaders along behind them. Which will sustain it and it will not... Right. Oh, and you won't have to be there all the time. Right. Well, enough about you. Let's talk about me. All right. Um, I learned that line from somebody. Let's talk about me. Um, so, Actually, the way you're supposed to say it is, well, well enough about me. Uh, what do you think about me? <laughs> that works, too. Yeah, I like that. I like that. So you know that we're making application for Global I've, I've, I've heard that. Yeah, yeah. So what do you think? 
I'm excited. I, I think that this really fits. And of course, you know, I was trying to recruit you to do this a year or so yeah, ago. I and know, I yeah. and uh, so I was uh, really happy when I heard that. Uh, you knew the Lord's will before I did. You were pulling through. It was like with your son. You, you kind of get these yeah, words yeah. about who, who's going to move and who's, yeah. who's not going to move. But no, I, I think uh, what you do, and every time I've heard you, I'm inspired mm. by your teaching, and I can I, I I just think that there are thousands and thousands of pastors that that you can build yourself into and lay a foundation that uh, you know the kingdom is, is going to spread. There there are a lot of cults and crazy things. Uh, there's the pro prosperity thing. Mm. Everywhere mm. I go, there are these mm. mega churches, prosperity. They're just siphoning off people's mm. money and living these lavish lifestyles. Oh, yeah, yeah. And there's no integrity to, to their leadership because they don't have the kind of training and that kind of uh, that grounding in God's word and that mm. you know practical uh, uh, teach. And then to be able to Train others to train others to train others. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I think it's time. You you know it. It's overdue. Yeah. And, uh, you know, come on. <laughs> so you're willing to help us? I, Coach and mentor? We don't know how to raise support. You've done that for 40 years well, longer. That's yeah. a big part yeah. of what comes. Uh, you just made applications, sent it in when? Sent it, we sent it in Friday, actually. Okay, yeah. so, so the ball's... Started to roll, yeah, yeah. and of course the next step will be to uh, get people praying yeah. for you, a huge mm-hmm. prayer support, get people funding, helping mm-hmm. fund so that you can not only live normally, but yeah. so that That'd you, be can, good. you can live normally. Yeah, you can make these yeah. trips because yeah. Uh, yeah. you know a lot of these pastors that we're training don't have uh, the resources to bring us over, pay for all that. So we've got to fund the travel. It's a significant expense. Uh, every every time we go, we have to raise the, the funds for our travel, and then also for some of the materials. Uh, we 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 don't just give them a freebie. They they pay something. Yeah, yeah. But there are people that are coming long distances, and they're they're going to need lodging. And we provide some of the meals. They provide some of the meals, depending on the network. And so there 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 are costs involved, and that's that that's going to be the next step. And Hopefully, Cedar Mills is going to be behind that, and individuals here will say, "Hey, we're we're going to help. Uh, you know, we're going to give twenty-five dollars a month, or hundred dollars a month, or hundred thousand dollars a month." Or, but, but I, I know there are a couple of those kinds of donors here. But what do you uh, think about me recruiting some of our people to go overseas and? To- I, I was just in Brazil, and we did our training, but we worked alongside of a long time pastor friend of mine mm-hmm. who brought uh, he actually rotated in he was mm-hmm. there for uh, for uh, nine weeks mm-hmm. and and then he rotated in people from his church in oh. Ho- in Hawaii mm-hmm. and uh, they spoke in schools and they oh, yeah. uh, it, it was it was really mm-hmm. exciting to, to, to see that we're, we're kind of like a strike force that you know, again, what we're trying to do is train pastors to multiply leaders and then churches. But, but there's so much that has to be done in terms of grounding those yeah, pastors. Yeah. My friend Jason Spence mm-hmm. has been doing it. He's been rotating into mm-hmm. Brazil for the last nine years from his mm-hmm. church and bringing teams yeah. and just solidifying what God is doing. But, but the Christian movement is just spreading mm-hmm. uh, just, just like yeah. wildfire in southern Brazil, mm-hmm. a city called... Uh, uh, Boa Retiro mm. do Sul. 
Well done. Well done. Yeah. I, I worked can, on that. How can we pray for you? I, just the effectiveness of our training yeah. and uh, ongoing resources mm-hmm. we need to do that. But also, especially for my wife, Sharon, mm-hmm. who is here, but she's not here. Mm-hmm. She's nearby, mm-hmm. resting. And just before we came on this trip, mm-hmm. I, I, I came back from Brazil May 16th, and I could tell something wasn't right with Sharon. Mm-hmm. She was just kind of fuzzy and fatigued. And mm-hmm. So the next day, got a doctor appointment. Uh, we began a series of appointments, MRI. We were walking out of the, the uh, dressing room, M- MRI, mm-hmm. uh, Sharon just had, and, and I had a phone call from her primary physician who said, you need to bring her into the emergency room, UCLA Ronald Reagan Medical mm-hmm. Center. Uh, right away that she has a bleeding on her brain. Mm-hmm. And what happened was her blood pressure spiked. It took them a while to figure out what, what caused this, but her blood pressure spiked and was like blowing a fuse. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, some kind of a vessel burst and, yeah. and, and, yeah. and then uh, they ca- caught that and uh, she was in the I- ICU for several days and then a regular hospital room and they stabilized her blood pressure and then gave her permission to mm. come on the trip. So mm. I've just tried to pace it so that she rests a lot and, mm-hmm. you know, eating well and mm-hmm. what she is. And so just pray that she gains mm. her strength. She's mm. quite fatigued. It's like mm. she go along, be fine, and then it's like somebody unplugs her. Uh-huh. And you can just see it on her visit. You'll see, there's, mm. you know, she's done. And she's mm. got to go lie down and, and get mm. some rest. And so... Anyway, mm. pray pray for her that we've been married 51 years. Yeah, and uh, yeah. So I, I'd like to make it another 51. So, yeah. with her as my partner. So, my brothers and sisters, do you think um, this brother's doing what God wants him to do? Yeah. Are you willing to join me in prayer to pray for him, God to bless him, and then also to bless his wife? Yeah. Would you stand with me then, and let's pray? Father, we join together as a congregation and we lift up Linus before you and we thank you for what you're doing in his life and how you're using him and for all these years of experience and wisdom. And Lord, we, we now are just grateful that you're using him around the world and to encourage pastors and church leaders and start new churches. Lord, you're just so clearly in the center of your purpose and will that we want to ask you, Lord, will you bless him, continue to give him strength and wisdom and Lord, we pray that you would use him again and again for your glory and for the strengthening of the church around the world. And now we want to lift up Sharon before you. Lord, we, we love her and ask, Father, that you will heal her up and that you'll give them many more years together. And I pray, Father, even for today while he goes and gets her and they head south, I, I pray, Father, will you bless them today and give them a, a day of joy together and we pray, Father, you'd guide the doctors in helping them to know what to do. And we ask if it's your will, by your mercy, Lord, we ask for healing for her. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, the, the great healer. Amen. Thank you. Would you like to thank Linus again? He's going to go get her and they're going to take off. So thank you again, brother. I'll be in touch. Okay, Ephesians 5. you got to listen a little faster now. I just wanted you to hear that. Um, this is a brother I respect and honor. 
and someone who I believe God has used and and I learn from him. Every time I get together with him, I learn from him. God used him in my life. And Anyway, I'll tell you more about that in the future. So we are in Ephesians chapter 5, and, and as Matt talked about last week, we're talking about these things that Paul is saying to us about the Christian walk. My friends, this is not just a Bible study we're doing here. It's not just a sermon that we're doing. What we're really talking about is God's wisdom for how to live. You want to know God's wisdom for how to live, don't you? I mean, you want to you want to be wise about how to live, and you want to be focusing on the right things. And we live in a confusing time, and we we live, the world is confusing, and we're confused at times about where to focus and where to spend our time and how to spend our time and what to give ourselves to. And I mean, we're pulled in so many different directions. Now, the Word of God in these chapters, chapters four, five, and six, particularly of Ephesians, Paul is just laying it out. And this, this verse that we're going to look at this morning, verses 15 to 21 of Ephesians 5, I think it's the sixth time that Paul uses the word walk. The NIV translates it live, but almost every time you, in the NIV where you see the word live, Paul is talking about the walk, the Christian walk, because live is a good translation of it, actually, because Paul thought of the Christian life as a walk, a left foot, right foot, just walking through life. This is how God wants us to live or how he wants us to walk. And so now in these verses, Paul is going to tell us some more things about what it is that is God's will for us in terms of the priorities for our life and the commitments for our life. So let's just dive in. You see it in your note sheet, or we'll put it up on the screen. We'll look at verse 15. Paul says, be very careful then how you live, or literally how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Some of your Bibles say, therefore, watch carefully how you walk. Paul's simply saying here, look, your life is important. And I want to say to you, your life is important. You might think you're just existing and you're, you may not know that really the purpose for your life, but, but God has a purpose for your life and God's purpose is for you to advance in a slow, progressive way to become more and more like Christ, to allow him to use you in the world. And praise God, he's very patient with us. He gives us time to slowly grow and progress. And so Paul is saying, look, give careful attention to how you live every day. So think about this. You are new in Christ. You are in Christ and Christ is in you. Is that true? So you are this new person that God has done a new creative work in you. I don't know about you, but I have to be reminded of that on a regular basis. Because sometimes if, if nobody reminds me or if God doesn't remind me, if I'm not back in the Word, I just start thinking life is just happening to us. You know, and we're sort of responders. But God is saying to us, no, you are in Christ. You are a new creation in Christ. And I have a purpose for your life. You have a way to live, and that way to live is laid out in the Word of God pretty carefully. So now Paul's saying, be certain then, because you have a new nature in Christ, be certain that your life corresponds with that new nature. Be careful how you live. And then he gives three illustrations about being careful how you live, and they're sort of contrasts. He says, be careful how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, not foolish, but understand what the Lord's will, not drunk, but being filled with the Spirit. He gives three, boom, 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 like contrast to help us understand what he means by be careful how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Now think with me for a moment about wisdom. Wisdom. There is a wisdom from God. The world has its own wisdom. In 1 Corinthians 1 and 1 Corinthians 3, Paul talks, compares the wisdom of God with the wisdom of the world. And he says there is a wisdom of the world, but so much of that wisdom of the world is foolishness to God. God looks at the wisdom of the world and says, 
That's foolish. It's not even true. But the world accepts it as wise. And But there is a wisdom from God that we don't, sometimes it's we can see it really clearly, and other times it takes a revelation for us. God has to actually reveal something that is his wisdom. So go on to verse 16. He says, now this is part of it then, making the most of every opportunity. Some of the old Bible translations say redeeming the time. Or make the most of every opportunity. Make the most of the time because the days are evil. Now, the days are evil doesn't mean everything is gross and immoral and terrible and, you know, and the devil is, you know, there's a demon behind every bush and all that. It just means that we live in a time in a world where the forces of evil are everywhere. And that the forces of evil really do influence our culture and our world. That we, we struggle against the world and the flesh and the devil. And so then we, what we've got to do is we've got to use life wisely. We must have the wisdom of God. And one of the ways that the wisdom of God immediately applies to our life is make the most of your time. Think about your time. Now you've heard it said before that everybody has the same amount of time. Have you noticed that some people use it more wisely than others? And when you think about those people, those are often the people that you respect. And the people, it's amazing how some people get so much done in the same amount of time I have. You know, and, and then you realize these are people who are making the most of their time. They're using it wisely. The wisdom of God has made its application in how they live everyday life. You've probably heard the statistic that the average American family spends four to five hours watching television a day. Now, when I hear that, I think, you've got to be kidding me. Four to five hours of watching television? And I think to myself, rather smugly, I don't watch television four to five hours a day. You know? And then somebody said, and then people look at computers. And I went, oh, no. You know? So, <laughs> you know, I don't know about you. So I spend a lot of time in a computer, and a lot of times, most of the time, it is, well, I think most of the time, it's work, right? It's, it's productive things. It's stuff that I must do. So I sit in front of it, and I look at a computer. I don't look at the television screen. I look at a computer screen. So that must be somehow better, I guess. Yeah, but then you realize... One of the things that you can do with a computer is you can surf the Internet. How many of you surf the Internet? Be honest. How many of you spend a long time surfing the Internet? Have you realized that you can spend, like, your whole life surfing the Internet and you never look at something twice? I mean, it's endless. It's just, and, and so much of it's fascinating and, you know, it's entertaining and some of it you can learn a lot and so, so much of it's good. Not all of it's good, but so much of it is good. So you can just spend this huge amount of time, you know, surfing the Internet or looking or learning more, you know, have, learning another operating system. Or, you know, just focusing on the computer again one more time. And I was thinking to myself, I do that. I surf the internet. I probably waste time. I also like to play hearts <laughs> on the computer. You know what hearts is? It's a little card game, you know. And uh, you can play against other people and listening to their reactions when you play badly because they can send you little messages. Anyway, I do that too much time. So I'm confessing that I do not make the most of every opportunity. Um, and it's just one of those day, one of those things where it can consume you. When Paul uses the word evil, he's not talking about the terrible, awful, horrible, immoral kind of thing. So many things are just wasteful. And if it's wasteful, then it becomes evil for you. Are you, are you tracking with me? It's a waste of life then. 
And Paul is warning us about that. You have the same amount of time for every single day of your life. And every day of your life can be a day when evil or waste dominates, or it can be a a day when you use your time wisely. And he goes on and he starts talking about what it means then to use your time wisely. Let's go on. Verse 17. He says, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And there's one of those contrasts. Don't be foolish, but understand God's will. It's essential for us as followers of Jesus Christ to be able to discern the will of God, isn't it? You really ought to say yes to this, right? I mean, you want to know God's will, right? It's essential for us as followers of Christ to, to focus on the will of God. And Paul's saying, look, you've got to turn away from that which is foolish, and you've got to discern the will of God. Now, the word fool or foolish is used again and again in the book of Wisdom, in the Old Testament, the book of Proverbs. Something like 74 times the word fool and foolish appears. And, and that book is about the contrast between God's wisdom and the ways of people that are just foolish. You know, things like the fool is lazy and he has an uncontrolled tongue and he slanders other people and he's quick to anger and he quarrels and he's proud and he's careless and he hates knowledge and he rejects counsel. The list goes on and on and on and on. There's a lot of ways to be foolish. And this book of Proverbs is really all about that. Look, reject the ways of the fool and then seek what it is. The will of the Lord. Understand, discern the will of the Lord. To understand the will of the Lord, it doesn't mean you just understand something in your mind. It's about that you discern the truth about something that you up and you apply it. That, that discerning the will of God is not just something that I know in the back of my mind and I don't, don't do anything about it. It's about when that understanding of the will of God actually begins to affect my life. I begin to live a different way. I walk a different walk. I do different kind of things because I discern the will of God. And Paul's saying, look, this is wisdom. Don't be a fool. You can be a fool. You can just waste your life. I mean, and you can give yourself to all kinds of things, but be wise. If you're going to be living the new creation that God wants you to live in, then you must, you must be wise then. And, and, and this is, let me just point out here, knowing the will of the Lord, know the, what the Lord's will is, the tendency, I don't know if you do this, but the tendency that so many people have, and sometimes I have, is that I really want to know God's will for the big stuff of life. Like when you're coming up against a really difficult, you know, like the fork in the road, do I go this way or do I go that way? Who do I marry? What job do I take? Do we relocate? Do, I mean, this major, these major decisions. Then we really want to know what God's will is until we tell people that, right? I'm trying to discern God's will for this decision in my life, and we seek counsel, and we pray, and we read the Bible for insight, and we talk to other people. And all that's good and right. But I just want to point out to you that that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about the major decisions of life. He's talking about everyday life. To discern the will of God for everyday life. Okay, here it comes. Does God have a will for you every day? Don't you think? See, we, we do this discern the will of God thing, and we sort of put it off in the stratospheres, like these are just, I only need to know the will of God like four times in my life. I need to know the will of God every day in my life. And I need to follow the will of God every day in my life. He has a will of God for you today. Did you know that? you got a plan for today, but God has a will for you in the plan that you have, and he may want to redirect you some, but he certainly has a will about how it is you are to walk 
on Sunday afternoon. And this week. So then what we must do then is we must not be foolish, but we must discern what the will of God is. Now, how do you do that? Well, most of the will of God, interestingly enough, is in the word of God. That's one of the reasons why you read the book and you study the book. And it's amazing how much God will tell you if you will listen to him. And one of the primary ways you listen to him is you read his word. It's just fascinating that you can, I mean, sometimes people do this because somebody told them they're supposed to have devotions. My friends, God will speak to you out of his word. Do you know that? How many of you know this? I mean, truly, you really know that God will speak to you when you spend time in his word. He'll tell you stuff, right? And it could be even in some strange place in the Old Testament where but God will still speak. I want to tell you the word of God, the will of God is in the word of God. So much of it. And then there's some other things that there isn't a particular verse about, but God will still use the word of God, the principles of the word of God and the truth of the word of God and the spirit of God in your life to help you discern the will of the Lord. So what you do is you ask him. Like, how about this one? You do a little, when you leave here today and you go get in your car, you say, Lord, what is your will for me this afternoon? Do you, you ever do that? Well, you just say, Lord, what's your will for me today? It's fascinating that he will often tell you in a way that you can understand what his will for you is today. It will, sometimes the Holy Spirit will just take something and jam it right into your understanding. You'll say, of course, this is the will of God. You know? Sometimes it would be really obvious, or sometimes it will be a verse, or somebody will remind you, like, you need to love the person that you're driving with, for example. Well, this would be the will of God, don't you think? Yeah. Right? And so, and anyway, it goes on. Okay, so let's go on. So Paul's talking about everyday life. And then, another crucial example that he goes to is in verse 18. This is another crucial example of not being foolish, but understanding the will of the Lord. And now he says, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. The NIV says, the word means waste. Some old Bible translations say dissipation. It means waste. Don't get drunk on wine, it leads to waste. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. This is the, the third contrast that Paul gives about being wise, about being careful how you live. Not wise... You know, not unwise, but wise. And now he's saying, not drunkenness, but the condition and the state of being influenced by the Spirit of God. Now, let me just say to you, the Bible doesn't, doesn't condemn drinking, but it does condemn drunkenness. It warns us about drinking, but condemns drunkenness. For the follower of Christ, this is an inappropriate, sinful behavior to be drunk. In the city of Ephesus, drunkenness was a real problem, and it was influencing the church. And so Paul probably included it here because they were struggling with it. They would have been in a culture where it was really, it was common and ordinary. In some cases, it was really something to be sought after, to get drunk. Say, well, you've got to be kidding. Have you ever studied some of the old Greek and Roman gods? You remember the Greek and Roman god Bacchus? It was Romans called him Dionysius, I think. And he was the god of wine. And part of the worship of the god of wine, and, and, and they worship right there in Ephesus. Some people worship the god of Bacchus, a false god. And, and the whole part of worship of, of Bacchus, of course, the god of wine, is you just got plastered, drunk. I mean, and, and they thought that you would experience ecstasy and even spiritual insight in a state of drunkenness. And so that was part of the worship. And that influenced the whole, like the city and other people thought, oh, well, you know, if they do that, then... 
And of course, then there are other people who didn't follow the God back us. They just thought, you know, getting drunk was fun. You know, they were they were the people of the persuasion that you can't really have a good time unless you have some liquor. You know, you know anybody who thinks that way? You know, and and, and some people just simply enjoy the experience and they want to be controlled by it or inebriated by it. And it's a pleasurable entertainment kind of thing. It's innocuous. I'm fascinated by the movement in American culture toward the whole wine thing. You know, I, I don't know about you. But it's fascinating to me to go into the supermarkets today and, like, you know, they've taken out bread and put big things of wine. It's, like, interesting to me. And I'm thinking, well, this, this is just a movement of our culture. Now, one more time. God does not condemn the drinking of wine. What he condemns is drunkenness. So make sure that you're hearing me well here. But I want you to think about the, the waste of this. The, and, and some of you, some of us, remember times of drunkenness and how what incredible waste it was and the effect that it had. Not only on us, people say, oh, I'm not hurting anybody else, but of course you are. You're hurting everybody else. Paul is saying these things, and the Greek scholars say, in the present tense. He's saying, don't be getting drunk, but be filling, being filled with the Spirit of God. This is a consistent life pattern that Paul is, is commanding us. These are imperatives in the Greek, that we must not be getting drunk, but we must be constantly being filled with the Spirit of God. He's saying, don't be controlled by anything else other than the Spirit. Don't be controlled by alcohol, but be controlled by the Spirit of God. So be filled with the Spirit. Think about this for a minute. Now, some of us have been around for a little while, and we know that some people, you know, take this, be filled with the Spirit, and they think, oh, this is one strange, mysterious, complicated, difficult thing that is for maybe certain people on a higher spiritual plane than I am. Or, or it's for other churches who really emphasize. My friends, this is a deception I want you to tell, I want you to know that this is the normal Christian life to be filled with the Spirit of God. That this is not a complicated thing, it's not a difficult thing, it's not mysterious, it's not hard. And it is for all of us to be filled with the Spirit of God. This is what God wants of us. This is a consistent pattern of the normal Christian life. If you think reading the Bible is a consistent pattern of the normal Christian life, being filled with the Spirit is even more so. It is the Spirit of God that enables us to understand the Word of God. If you think loving people is normal for us, being filled with the Spirit of God is normal for us, and He is the one who helps us to know how to love people rightly. It is the Spirit of God who enables us to live. And it's not just for some, it is for all of us. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're saved by the blood of Christ, to be filled with the Spirit of God is God's will for you. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Now I want to make sure this is not for somebody else. This is for you personally. This is normal Christianity for you to be filled with the Spirit. What does it mean? It means you yield to Him. It means that He has an influence in your life. He has actually influenced you. He is influencing you. You are under the influence of the Spirit of God. You've heard of people driving drunk. They're weaving around, or, you know, and hopefully a policeman will come along and pull them over before they kill somebody. So you've seen this. The policeman pulls them over, you know, and they get out of the car, you know, and, and the, some of you know about this, right? So, and they say, you know, walk this line. Remember that? And, and so you see, you ever seen this? You know, people walk in the line and they're, you know, they're going, you know, and, you know, or they do this thing where they, I don't know if they still do this, where they 
put your arm out here and then you touch your nose. And if you're like inebriated, you poke yourself in the eye, you know, instead. And, and so the police officer, his purpose or her purpose is try to figure out how much under the influence you are. And if you're deeply under the influence, they charge you with what they call a DUI, which means, ah, some of you know, <laughs> driving under the influence. My friends, the Christian life is to be under the influence of the Spirit of God. Driving under the influence of the Spirit of God. Think about that. Might change the way we drive, even. Hmm. But everyday life under the influence of the Spirit of God. And so it's, it's simply the idea, I'm giving myself to the control of the Holy Spirit. He has a will. He is the Spirit of God. He is the one who tells us and helps us to understand what wisdom is and also to discern what the will of God is. And if you don't ask, sometimes you, he, you won't know. But when you ask him, he will often tell you in a way that you can understand. It's a prayer that he loves to answer when you ask him, what do you want me to do and will you give me what I need to do what you want me to do? It's not complicated because, and probably different people do different things, so I don't know if what, I'm, what I do is what you ought to do or not. But for me, it's, it's so often it's just a simple prayer. And it goes something like this. It's like when I drive down here, I'm, we don't live very far away, I have like a three-minute drive, you know, to over here on Sunday morning. And I want to tell you, every time, every time I'm praying, Lord, will you use me today? Will you help me not to say anything too terribly stupid? You know, will you help me not to send people off somehow with a misunderstanding of your word? Will you, will you use me to love people? Lord, I want to be filled with your spirit, and I, and I want the spirit of God to fill the people so that they understand what it, whatever it is I can do in their life. And so that they, so I'm, I'm praying like that. I do it every Sunday. I, you know, I'm always nervous. People say, you, you've been doing this for 40 years. You still get nervous every time. I, I just want you to know that, for me, one of the characteristics of Sunday morning is asking to be filled with the Spirit of God in my three-minute drive. I'm doing it earlier, and I'm doing it Saturday night, but I, you know, when I'm on my way here, I'm thinking, okay, you know. So I want to tell you, every time you get in your car and you're going to a meeting, or you're going to work, or you're, you're going home where your family is, or you're picking up your kids, or you're walking into a, an appointment with your boss, or whatever it is you're doing, that can be the moment of prayer. That can be the moment of, where you say, Lord, fill me with your spirit. Help me to respond to my boss the way you want me to. That would be a very practical prayer. And the spirit of God just might have a different idea than you do about what you ought to do for this meeting or for this responsibility or this trip or whatever it is. Are you, are you tracking with me? This is every day. It's all day long. Now, if you're like me, you'll forget to pray this an awful lot. So sometimes I do something at the beginning of the day, Lord, when I forget, will you still fill me with your spirit and use me and help me not to be too stupid today? And, you know, I just want you to be wise. And I'm just trying to say to you, look, this is for you. This is for your life and it's for your family. It's for you with your children and you with your parents and you and your job and you with your neighbors and you with the person you married. What if a husband and wife were both saying, Lord, fill us with your spirit and help us to be the husband and wife you want us to be. What if? What if you, as the spouse, did that? God, God will do some things if we will ask him. And one of the ways of living wisely is consistently, day by day, being filled with the spirit of God. 
All right, let's go on. Verse 19 and 20. So then what happens is, is as you ask to be filled with the Spirit of God, then there are results in your life. Stuff happens in your life. And one of the things interesting that Paul says this, you know, so speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Notice the word speak. And then he says sing. So it's speak and sing. Speak, sing, and make music. Now, I, he put the word speak in there on purpose for several different reasons. One is that in that time, in that culture, they... They spoke the hymns and the songs as well as they sang them. I don't know about you, but I grew up in a church every now and then when we'd open the hymn book and we wouldn't sing it, we would speak it. And we've done that occasionally here. We probably ought to do it more because it drives the truth of the words home to us. We put them on the screen and we put them on the screen on purpose because the reality is that some of you may not really get into the style of music. But when you see the words and it's God's truth... Then, then you, it resonates with your brain. God uses it in your mind and you can, you can worship through the speaking of the, of the word of God. Or, if you're like me, when, when something happens and, and God uses a worship song here, does this ever happen to you where it, it just connects with you somehow and you find yourself singing it during the week? You know, and it comes back to you again and again and again and you, and then you find yourself worshiping God you know, just driving or something. Sometimes you're speaking it, sometimes you're singing it. And by the way, this is an encouragement for those of you who can't carry a tune in a bucket. Right? Some of you are like that. Some, you know, I know men particularly who just have to go to church and sing. And, you know, a church is like the only place where men sing, it seems like. You know, so, and so you just, and, you know, like to sing or anything. Can I, can I just tell you, relax, you know, speak it. You know, speak it while everybody else is singing. Nobody will make fun of your voice with nothing else, you know, but just speak the truth and worship that way. So anyway, Paul's saying, look, when you're filled with the Spirit, Psalms, that's probably Old Testament Psalms, 150 Psalms that were songs, sometimes set to music, but often spoken. Hymns are probably other songs other than the hymns of the Old Testament, things sung in church. Particularly hymns were focused on Jesus Christ and, and his work. Spiritual songs, we're not sure about that. That could be like songs of testimony. Or, or songs about Jesus Christ and what he's done. And often people say that, that spiritual songs are about the things that, that God was stirring up in the life of Christians so that they would write their own songs of testimony to what Jesus was saying. And some of you do that. Some of, some of the people in our church write songs. This would be spiritual songs. So you could talk a lot about that and, so, and the scholars debate about it. But I want you to notice the next phrase. It says, sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. That's the part you ought to remember. In your heart to the Lord. Whatever is happening, the whole music thing, we get so dependent upon the talent of the musician or sometimes we focus so much on our on singing voices and not always have good singing voices and some have incredible singing voices and we po- we start getting focused on the the talent of the musician which is great to have talented musicians or we get so focused on the quality of the voices we get you know that becomes the focus either the quality of the musician or the quality of and, and Paul would say look the crucial thing about being filled with the spirit and truly worshiping has to do with in your heart to the Lord. What is going on in your heart to the Lord? That is why you can sit right here and you can think to yourself, I do not like this song, or I don't like this music, 
or it's too loud, or it's not loud enough, or I wish we'd do this or that. And I want to say to you, I have personally discovered that every single time I will set aside for a moment my particular desires about style and volume, I will say, Lord, what do you, is this true? Is the, are the words true that we're putting on the screen? Can I speak them? Can I, in my heart, to the Lord, worship you in this moment? But this is not primarily about church and the gathering of church. This is about everyday life again. So I want to ask you, do you sing and make melody in your heart? Do you speak and sing praise to God in your heart to the Lord as a lifestyle? Do you? And shouldn't we? We who follow Christ, shouldn't we be motivated and shouldn't we do this? And I want to tell you when, it, when you actually give yourself, I'm talking about during the week now, when you give yourself to worshiping of God, whether it's speaking or whether it's hymns or songs or spiritual songs, whatever it is that, that I mean, Paul probably mentioned these three things because he's, he's really saying, look, you can worship God in a variety of styles and methods and ways of singing and speaking. The crucial thing is, is your heart being directed to the Lord, and then the next thing is giving thanks, right, for everything. Giving thanks for everything to God the Father. Now, every time I see the word everything, I always feel a responsibility as a pastor to just draw aside for a moment and say, now think with me for a moment about the word everything here. This is one of those verses in the Bible that people have taken and they've taken it out of context and they've made it mean something that I don't think Paul ever intended. It goes something like this. All the evil and terrible tragedies and the abuse and the violence and the slaughter and you know all the terrible things are things that God allows to happen so you are to thank God for them. My friends, don't check your brain at the door when you read God's word. You need to realize that when something, when, when somebody says something like that and it, and it just goes, what? Then there's probably a problem. It may mean that God has a wisdom that you don't have yet, so you search and discover it. But, but I want to tell you, if, you if, if somebody says something like that and you say, wait, wait a minute, doesn't God think of this as horrible also? Doesn't God weep at this? Doesn't God, am I to thank God for this? Now the Bible does say that God, God uses everything and everything works out for, the good for those who love him are called according to his purpose. So he even uses tragedies, you believe this, then the sovereignty of God. But he, he's not saying that we are forced as the children of God to thank God for evil. Are you, are you tracking with me? And one of the ways in which you understand this is you, you need to understand the principle, and you know, most of you know this, the principle of understanding the word of God. One of the basic principles is context. The context of what's immediately surrounding those verses and then like local context of right around those verses and then what, what some people call global context of all of the word of God. So when somebody says something to you that just seems bizarre like that, you have to say, does the whole word of God, not just one verse, but does the whole word of God teach that? Now, for example, the word everything right here. Next week, we're going to go on to these verses. And I just, if you have your Bibles open, go down to verse 24. Matthew 5, or Matthew, Ephesians 5, 24. This is the phrase, wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And the husbands go, yeah. <laughs> I had a young man one time tell me I was, I was going to marry them as a couple, and he said, could you please work that in, Pastor? You know, into, into the, you know, into, and I said, have you read the verses around that? 
He said, no, I just remember, wives, submit to your husbands and everything. I said, go home and read the verses around that, and you won't want me to work these verses in, you know, unless we do them all, because the heavy burden, my brother, is put on you to love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And a man who will do that, a wife will gladly submit to. So, do you, do our wives, and we'll talk about this next week, but just a hint here. Are wives supposed to submit to their husbands when their husband wants them to do something ungodly, sinful, painful, that's not in accordance with love and something that's contrary to the will of God? Are they just submit? No, of course not. So then, is there anything in the context that would help you understand this word everything? Well, you go back two verses before where it says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And there you go. Anyway, we'll talk about that more next week. So anyway, I just want you to say, when the Bible says, always give thanks for everything, it is qualified with what it is that God wants you to give thanks for. Okay, then verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is another application, another thing that happens to us when we are filled with the Spirit. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit, submit. Whoa! You know, if you want to light a fire somewhere and try this one around the water cooler, you know, we're learning about submission. You know. The world doesn't really like the word submit very much. We'll have more fun with this next week. The word submit literally means to arrange under. How many of you are veterans? Veterans, you know about the chain of command? Right? It's all about arranging yourself under the chain of command, that you salute those who are over you, who have authority, and we are called to a place of submission. There's always somebody over, it seems like, and there's usually somebody under, unless you're like starting out at boot camp. So you arrange yourself under this authority. That's what submit means. It's used in a military sense, but it's used in a biblical sense to submit to the law of God. It's, it's used in the sense that everything is put in submission under the feet of Christ. It's used as a motivation to us. Older men or younger men are to submit to older men. I mean, this is a word of God that comes to us again and again and again. Submit. And now Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence, literally in the fear of Christ. Now, fear is not terror here. It's about honoring Christ. And the person who wants to live for Jesus Christ is not going to find it difficult to submit. The one who will follow Jesus, let me ask you this, did Jesus submit? Was he submissive? How many different ways did Jesus submit? So if I'm going to be like Jesus, I too must submit. I want you to, I just want you to see that this is not about some people submitting to some other people. The Bible does say that, that there are, we're to submit to the higher authorities in the government and in the church. We are to submit to spiritual leaders, pastors and elders. But this is not what this is about. This is submit to one another. It is about all of us submitting to all of us. Think about that. See, this isn't about me just one person or two people in my life. This is I'm called to submit to you, and you are called to submit to me, not because I'm a pastor, but because I'm a brother in Christ. This is a word to the people of God, that we are to submit to one another. So what does that mean? How do you do that? Well, you go out in the lobby, and you stand there drinking a cup of coffee or something, and 
and you see somebody or somebody walks up to you and you are to submit to them. What does that mean? It means you care about them. Submission is simply caring about someone else. It's about bringing myself under and seeing their needs. It's about, it's about uh, parents, do you submit to your children? Oh, yeah. Right? They submit to us, right, and our authority, but we submit to them. We submit to them and their needs, right? Our whole life is given to submission to their needs. And even when they grow up and move away, you're still submitting to them. And husbands and wife, is this all one way where the wife is supposed to submit to the husband? How many husbands do you submit to your wife? Yeah. But you see, this is about church primarily. In the body of Christ, we are to submit to one another. So we are to care for one another in a way that is submitting to the needs of the other person. It's as simple as that. It's just simple, Holy Spirit-filled willingness that when you have a need, or in our relationship, I will be submissive to you and you will be submissive to me. It's just fascinating how beautiful a relationship can be when there is mutual submission. We'll talk about this more next week. Let's take the Lord's Supper together. Fold up your Bible, if you would. Think with me for a moment. As we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together, think with me a moment back again about Jesus. I want you to think about, try not to let your mind wander right now. We're going to be done in just a couple minutes. Think with me again about the Master. The one we call Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. I asked you before, was he submissive? And you said, yes. Who did he submit to? He submitted to his father, of course, didn't he? Did he submit to you? He really did, didn't he? He saw you and saw what you would need today for your life and he submitted. What else did he submit to? Did he submit to suffering? Did he submit to death? Didn't he submit to sacrifice? Didn't he submit his whole life? When you read the Gospels again and again, he was interrupted. Sometimes he wanted to rest or pray and someone would come and he would submit to them again. Didn't he submit to so much ignorance and so much confusion and and he submitted even to resistance? He submitted to opposition. He prayed for the forgiveness of people who killed him or crucified him. Think about this. When you come down this morning, you take a piece of bread and a cup. Will you think about Jesus? That's what it's about, right? Right? And will you do it in joy and gratitude for the fact that he submitted? And therefore, of course, we submit also. And because he submitted, everything else is possible for you. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that the Son of God submitted to the will of the Holy Father to give himself as a sacrifice for us. We are grateful that the Son of God submitted to the cross, to suffering, to death, to separation, to having sin laid upon him for us. We're grateful that he submitted to our need and did what was necessary to meet our need. We ask that you would help us to leave here today with that in our hearts, that we want to be like him and do what he did. But now for these precious moments, when we listen to a song and when we come and take a piece of bread and a cup, when we put it in our mouth and we eat it and we listen and we sit together as your people, Father, will you 
Enable our hearts to be turned to the Lord in praise and gratitude. Let us worship now, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen.